Hello and welcome back to Yex Talk Season 2, Search Wars. We have a great episode coming up for you today, and we're thrilled to welcome Stephen Levy, editor-at-large at Wired and author of top technology books, including In the Plex, How Google Thinks, Works, and Shapes Our Lives, uh, Facebook, The Inside Story, and the iconic hackers, heroes of the computer revolution. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. So, Stephen, our theme for this season is on search wars. And as an AI search company, our whole focus is that search is beginning to sort of disseminate and sort of change how people engage with the very technologies that they become so accustomed to. As someone who has followed technology for so long, you're the perfect person to get a sort of a 30,000 foot view on the topic of search and mostly kind of understanding how do you view search and its importance in our, our daily lives? It's interesting. So search comes from the search engines. We think of the search. And the idea originally was to find a web page. Sort of maybe lurking behind there was the concept that if I could look at enough web pages, if I can get the right one, I'm getting the answer to something. But originally, it was actually to find the right page. The reason why Google was so successful is that it figured out a way to get the right page, much more often than the competitors at the time, which thought they were doing a pretty good job by maybe digging it up as one of like 20 or 30 different alternatives they'd show you. If you looked at a page for the Philadelphia Phillies, these other ones might give you that as like the sixth or seventh result. And Google was able to give it to you as number one. And maybe even you could click on a button that says, I'm feeling lucky. And you would go straight there. Yes. Now, the I'm feeling lucky button is implied that yes. when people say something and they're searching, they're not searching for a web page. As you just said, they're searching for an answer. They're searching for a suggestion. They're searching for something that provides a need. It's funny you bring up the I'm feeling lucky button. I was doing a study the other day where that's only available on desktop now. They never continued pushing that out. And it's something like 1% of people still click that. I did the analysis against their desktop revenue for ads. They lose like four or $500 million a year not showing ads on that 1% of clicks, which is crazy. But I think to your point, everyone is looking for answers at this point. It's not a list of links. And in fact, our platform is really built upon that entire focus of, hey, look, if you're searching for something, you don't really want the first 10 results of 867 million pages. What you're looking for is the answer. So I couldn't agree more. But what do you think in terms of how the access to search? So I still view Google as probably one of the single most amazing advancements in human history. What do you think the impact of search in general to people's daily lives is when you look at where it started and now where it's headed? There's no question that search and Google specifically is the cognitive prosthetic. We're kind of cyborgs <laughs> these days. The little slab of silicon and glass we carry around is our mental appendage that gives us the answers to things. And we're changing the way our brains retain information because it's no, there's no need to retain that information. Yes. You could argue about that. It's an interesting question. Like I went to school, people were still, they sort of like made us recite some poems, memorize some poems, right? Little Byron. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. And in college, we had to memorize the beginning of the Canterbury Tales, right? In yes. Middle English. So the question is, what is the value of that now? Some people would argue that 
as a mental calisthenic is something that's beneficial and necessary. But I suspect that generations of people who've grown up in the last couple decades would reject that because Google is always there to not only look at the opening passages of Canterbury Tales, but have it read it back to you. Yes. In any language. Yeah. Middle English is like would be key for that, I guess. <laughs> yes. It probably won't translate very well. I don't think it's hard for most people to yeah, understand yeah. it today. You know, I laugh at that. There was an XKCD cartoon ages ago where it said, my IQ drops 40% directly tied to my internet connection. It's how it feels. Well, that, you could argue that, or you could also say that my IQ is 40 points higher when I have that thing in my hand. I'm fascinated by uh, when we talk about people's cognitive ability and, and sort of this concept where people say, well, people are more mindless now. And at the same time, I don't think the concept or the apps or the mindfulness sort of uh, revolution has never had a bigger following or more of an interest in how we think and how these extensions can really help us. And search clearly is at the center of that and that with people having access to this. Now, I noticed also this month, the cover of Wired was about the sort of the at the ousting of Timit Gebru, Dr. Gebru, who was working on the ethical AI issues facing big natural language models. And we've all been seeing GPT-3. Uh, people are now using that in their search engines. We're seeing people who have been using BERT, the bidirectional encoding transformer from Google. Those advancements really power a lot of natural language or conversational-based search. What do you think is sort of the current state of thinking about the morals or the ethical issues that are also facing search when you see something like that happen to Dr. Gebru. That's a great story by my uh, colleague, Tom Simonite. It's outstanding. It's, I mean, talk about in depth. It's a wonderful, everyone should read it. Once we started adopting the phones as our main way of computing and connecting, it became inevitable that natural language was really going to be our main means of connecting. And if you talk to people at Google, it's clear that they see that as something. I actually had a conversation relatively recently with someone, uh, the head of search at Google, actually, from what he was talking about. It's clear that they don't want us to view the search box as something that we type keywords into, even if we're using the web to talk to the search box, to have a conversation with it. And what they're doing is using the most sophisticated AI to be able to interpret natural language and to be able to, to converse with us to help us hone through a conversation what it is that we want. Ethically, the cutting edge to that is in Google's duplex. Yes. That carries on a conversation, you know, and is able to pick up conversational cues to respond to you. And when they first announced it, I think they were a little surprised that the pushback Yes. People, you know, originally they didn't like tell you whether they were going to inform you that, gee, you were talking to a robot. I was interested to find that Google makes thousands and thousands of calls every day. Yes. They're robots to human beings at stores and businesses to say, when are you open? Are you open during this holiday? And, you know, can the person will be talking to the robot and they'll say, well, are you open the holiday? He says, yeah. And he said, what about the day after? <laughs> I remember it was 2018 when they first 
demonstrated that. Yeah, yeah. Very quietly, because there was outrage, and very quietly, they went and got it legalized in 49 states, because originally a lot of the states were like, hey, that's technically recording a line, you can't do it. There were a lot of questions, right? But I think yeah. to your point, there's also the moral question, which is, you have no idea you're talking to a machine. And what's fascinating to me is, I think Google still has to figure out the ads issue, right? Because if you're having a conversation, People are going to be loath to be told seven ads verbally before they go on to what the answer is. The most successful ads are the ones which spring up and are indistinguishable from the organic content. Yes. So you could imagine the possibilities for ads in natural language, yes. right? Where you're talking to someone and they make you a make a recommendation to you. Hey, by the way, have you tried this? That's very concerning. Again, I'm dating myself, but I remember uh, the Wayne's World movie where they did an entire scene making fun of people selling out and they're wearing Nike gear and Reeboks yeah, yeah. and Pizza Hut. And it was it was brilliant. It was just that question of where is that line of you're just sort of baking it in. We know product placement and things like sitcoms and movies have been going on for a very long time. Uh, and at the same time, when you're having a conversation with what you assume to be either a human or an AI that hopefully has your interests at heart in solving your problem, that's going to create a lot of stress and strain. And I think we would be wise to watch that closely. When someone like Google has a falling out over something relatively simple, like Dr. Gebru's paper, which was nothing groundbreaking, as your columnist pointed out, it was really pretty much just citing other historical facts in the research. Do you see that as a battleground where we're going to have this, the end to the column is, is fascinating, but it's sort of this idea of people that are sponsored by corporations can't really be the watchdogs we hope they could when it comes to the ethical situation facing AI and really, like you said, search, like mild suggestion inside a conversation gets really, really dangerous. That's right. No, no. I mean, obviously a trillion dollar corporation like Google can't be the arbiter of ethics in AI or, or any of these other big issues, speech or whatever, it's difficult to legislate too. I mean, you could say, yeah. if you're talking to a robot, right? And this is what Google says they do now. In the beginning, you could say, this is an automated voice talking. But we all know from the days of the Eliza, that program in the 1960s where mm -hmm. something was a sort of like a little toy therapist, you know, where you'd say, uh, boy, I'm not happy today. Well, what is, why is it you're not feeling happy? Right, yeah, right. People knew that they were talking to a machine. And in that case, you know, like not a really sophisticated one, they would fall into that. In this case, I mean, just saying, you know, you're talking to an automated program here, you know, start getting into it and saying, hey, I'm, I'm on the road here. I need some gas. I'd like a restaurant that could serve comfort food. And then the recommendation comes saying, well, while you're there, there's this fantastic store that sells homemade sweaters or whatever. And you're into that mode of conversation and you kind of like forget or put aside, this isn't a disinterested party talking to you. Yeah. It's like a robot that gets rewarded when you wind up completing a sale that it recommends. I look at the technology today and looking how far duplex has come. Like you said, I think they updated 3 million businesses data during the pandemic by letting duplex just call businesses yeah. without them understanding that it was a, except in Louisiana, you can't do it in Louisiana yet. But when they were doing that, I think it's pretty obvious Google's already there. They could be converting their search experience to a conversation today. The question is, to your point, I think it's going to throw a whole new set 
of questions about the dominance of the ads and is the ad revenue the way that's really going to be monetized? Because fundamentally, I think it does become very difficult for humans, anyone really, to take a step back every five minutes and go, wait, I'm talking to a machine that's paid yeah. for by ads, even though it's incredibly helpful. And I just found the perfect little sweater on the side of the road for my kids. That is not necessarily what's going on. And, and it's going to bring a lot of challenges. Well, increasingly, our own decision making will be out of the process because it won't be us talking to the robots. It'll be our robots talking to their robots and they'll just like put us in the parking lot of these places. It's so true. The autonomous vehicle basically has a side bet with Google on whether they can get you to pull into Wendy's tomorrow at two or not. And you don't even know that's happening. Yeah, your order's ready. <laughs> and here's what you wanted. You just didn't know it. It's a fascinating topic because I think it, it also touches upon what has been sort of an undulating interest, let's say, in data privacy. And you and I, when we we're starting our conversation today, we were talking a little bit about other search interfaces like DuckDuckGo and also Neva, who I know is started by some of the top former Google people as well. Where do you see that happening? Because I'm always amazed you had pointed out the head of search said, look, it's not about keywords. And I laugh because my teenagers speak keyword but my six-year-old doesn't, right? He yeah, speaks right. to Alexa like it's an, an equal. When you think about privacy of how quickly we share and overshare via conversation, what do you see happening with privacy as part of the whole search battle? The gap is legal protections. I think it's a doomed process to say, how do we control big tech? How do we control Google, Facebook, Amazon, the rest of them? What we need to do is just get the basic protections that we feel that people need and make those companies hew that line, no matter what impact it has or doesn't have on their business model. So I think there's the issue because they're going to do what they can. Their interest is to grow. In Facebook's case, Facebook sees its revenue generation as a way to fuel its growth. So it's this cycle of revenue, data, and growth. It's fascinating because watching how, I want to say Cambridge Analytica is one of the first where people started to take notice, obviously because of the election impacts, but realistically it's been going on way before that in terms of hoarding the data and then using it in some way to either target or attract or engage. When I think of these platforms that are offering the alternative, part of the issue is they're not necessarily going to be free. DuckDuckGo obviously does contextual and we're seeing contextual ads Look, that's what we had before we got into all this mess. Right, right. Yeah, Neva's a subscription. It's a subscription. Yes, and, and or subscription, right. So Neva's subscription, DuckDuckGo, is saying, hey, you you looked up something about boats. I'm going to show you ads for boats. And that's, yeah. That's the way Google used to operate. Right. That was how Google became so successful by coming out with AdWords, which I get into the birth of it in the Plex. I felt that was the perfect ad system. It didn't depend on your personal information. It just depended on the intent that you shared in the search box. Yep. And advertisers will be able to sell to that. And Google punished them if, if they tried to place ads that weren't relevant yep. in there. Their algorithm yep. punished that. It locksmiths. Locksmiths everywhere. <laughs> so it worked for advertisers because advertisers you know were able to post the relevant ad that you were interested in and it worked for you because sometimes you would like find the result on the ad that even better than the organic result and it worked for Google because 
the system worked. Advertisers would pay. And the way they ran the auction was they were encouraged to bid away because it was like a second price auction where they knew they wouldn't be bidding like twice what the runner up would bid. Which was truly, I think, really the the absolute breakthrough in terms of how the pricing structure worked to sort of thwart at least the first massive wave of potential spam or uh, stealing of, of the traffic. Question quickly on sort of Google and Facebook. So I always look at it as Facebook has the search for everyone and who they are. Google has the search for kind of everything. So what to know. And then Amazon is the search for everything or object you would want to buy. Do you see that sort of this concept of the decentralization of search as an ongoing thing? Will this accelerate or will Google or others successfully be able to just sort of maintain that massive market share? Do you think that consumers will want an additional search approach? For the foreseeable future, Google's still at the center of it. You mentioned Facebook. It's interesting. Facebook has not been successful in search. I know. Yeah. I remember they had a big push in search around, what was it, maybe 2013 or something like that? I, yep. I, I, they called me in, Mark himself demonstrated. And actually, it was kind of interesting. It was kind of innovative because they you know, like used what other people liked on Facebook. So you could say, show me like an Indian restaurant that the people in Palo Alto, like my friends like. Yes, yeah. You could do all kinds of interesting queries that, that really worked, but they never really supported it in a big way. And it's a shame. They, they actually had some great people working on that. I think probably my guess is they found that people's use of Facebook didn't benefit them if they had great search. Yep. I remember they called it social search, and that was that exactly what you were describing. It was a social graph. Yeah. And it was this concept of people I know liked this. Yeah. Yeah. It was graph search. Graph search. Yes. yes. But Amazon obviously is a huge riser in search. And, you know, and Apple now is like a big player because one big funder in advertising has been to download apps. Apple sees other people make money from that and, and, and it wants that. It's interesting. You see, if you want to piece together your search engine, if you're neither or someone else, you've got to go to Google to some degree. Like, I think they use Bing as their web search, but they have to use Google Maps, right? You yes. know? Yeah, yeah. So when you talk about search, you're talking about a suite of different domains that you put together like a Lego piece. But it's so expensive to do it on your own. I mean, to kind of match Google in any of these domains is incredibly expensive. At Yext, we build knowledge graphs specifically to power a knowledge graph-based search strategy for enterprises. A lot of people will like license like Wolfram or... Right. Yes. And each one of them, we kind of break the world up into five different search areas. There's sort of the marketing search side. So making sure that yeah. if people ask questions about your business, that's all correct. There's app search, which is inside an app. So developers leverage that. There's support search. If you have a question about a product or a good or a service, all of these are actually slightly different flavors of it. Just the way, same way most hospital systems, they have the doctor finder, which could yeah. honestly be one of the worst experiences out there in search. All anybody really wants to say is, 
doctor near me who speaks Spanish and takes Etna, right? Yeah. Like they, they want to have the conversation. It's that process of can we enable them? And I think for the way we view the world is those technologies were really only available to Google and others who were building them. And now it's something that we think, you know, you can start to empower more companies to have that direct conversational AI. That's a big process. That's something people have to sort of understand as a valuable input in their business model. Question for you from a crystal ball perspective. You have been following the space. You know all the players personally and directly. When you think about where search might be headed, because you had mentioned just recently having a conversation with uh, the head of search at Google, what do you see as the future of it? Is it sort of baked into everything that we do? Is it, can I ask my fridge to search for something to make for dinner? Like, what do you see as the future of how people engage in the act of searching for answers? Right. Well, I mean, as we said earlier, search is broader than just searching. It's providing. This is something where Amazon has done. We've been hearing about intelligent assistance for many, many years since the Knowledge Navigator at Apple in the early 90s. Yeah, I remember right? that. What Amazon built really, I think, was not the first, but certainly the breakthrough intelligent assistant in, the, in that sense. And obviously, we have got Siri and Cortana and Google Assistant. Are you searching when you interact with that and talk about the weather, is that a search really? Or look at your calendar? What do I have on the agenda today? If you could change that, which is the same app, you could say, well, scratch that appointment, right? That's not search. That's just your assistant. So we're talking really about a broader phenomenon than search. We're really talking about this information butler that people have been talking about for decades. Yeah, I think we called them Jeeves first, remember? It was Ask Jeeves was your information butler. Yeah, so yeah, I guess Jeeves went for that, but you know. <laughs> when we think about, you had mentioned earlier, intent, you know, I think one of the wonderful things about search is it can be conversational and it does actually have your intent in it. So again, show me what, what my day looks like and where I might go for lunch based on that. And there is a play there for bringing in other data that can help people in terms of navigating their day. We always used to talk about how the customer journey always starts with a question. Mm -hmm. But as you point out, questions take a lot of different forms. And it's certainly, we don't see that keyword search box as any indicator of the future. It certainly feels much more like you won't even necessarily know you're searching, but fundamentally it's search technology that powers almost all of those interactions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, like search is just like the hammer you're using to drive in the nail, right? You think about it originally, it literally was a search. You have this big pile of websites and you had to sift through it to find the one you wanted. Now we're really talking about just the way to, to navigate all your activities in the world. Certainly, we don't see that slowing down. To us, it's a lot of how do you organize information into either graph structures or natural language structures that enable that? Because hopefully what we start to see is more and more people realize if you want an answer from a business, let's say an enterprise or the WHO or someone important, you want to be able to ask them a question directly and get the answer from them. Because we also live in the world, unfortunately, of massive misinformation and the manipulation of information. Search kind of opens a window to that in the classic model. Well, yeah. No, so now the question is, this is something I've, you know, like I've been talking to Google about recently. It used to be then in the old model, simply unearthing what other people responded to in the query. The most popular answers to a query, the assumption was that would be your answer. But if the most popular answer 
is misleading. If you're asking, am I going to be protected from COVID-19 if I'm vaccinated? And the answer is don't take the vaccine. Yes. Most people click on it, get a result from an anti-vax site. You know, then there's something wrong. So what does Google, which has long held that we don't get involved in those issues, do about something like that? In the Plex, I write about what happened when someone typed in the word Jew. Yes. And they would get these Holocaust denial sites. And there was a big crisis at Google. And this is like maybe like 2004 or something like yep, that. I remember. I was working for Newsweek at the time and I called up Google and I asked about that. And, and Sergey got on the phone with me and you know, kind of told me about his thought process and that. So they eventually decided that they would take out an ad for the word Jew and you would get the same results, but Google would have an ad explaining why you were getting those results. To him, that diffused the issue there. People are no longer accepting that. So Google has to now get involved with the quality of information that people unearth. And man, that's a hard problem. I think for them, for really any of the platforms that allow for the rapid sharing, Facebook has the same issue. Even Amazon in the reviews has a huge problem of how what data is shared back. But becoming the cop at scale is really tough. Yeah. So I certainly feel for them on it. But the argument of we can't keep up with it or we can't keep up with the amount of data or information you had mentioned earlier, we're getting to the point now where AI can write the stories at scale to feed to the AI and search. I've had access to uh, GPT-3, the open AI platform for quite some time. And sometimes it's actually amazing what it comes out with. And other times it's complete nonsense. It's obviously needs human curation, but that's GPT-3. A lot of people don't realize GPT-2 was only 11 months earlier, right? So it took 11 months. Now we have the GPT-3 of coding, which we've seen unroll. So uh, basically, clearly we're just the beginning of this stuff. The AI-ification, which it should never be a word, but if it is a word, that, that is the place we're headed on almost all of these platforms. Look at Google. The thing about it was it, it was always an AI company. That was the conclusion I came to in, in, in the Plex. They say, what is Google, right? I always felt that it was an AI company. And that was search came along with that. But all the other things they did, they added a level of, of AI to it. The founders were AI graduate students and they hired their professors. Yes. Certainly, we think that's the general direction. Obviously, AI is almost, as Dr. Gibru pointed out, completely beholden to the data on which it learns and experiences in order for it to, to build out its solutions, which is a big issue generally for many companies and enterprises. They don't even have a hold on their own data. So getting their accurate data from a, one company or one enterprise into a format is very important to help people actually prepare for the AIification of all of their information so that people can have a conversation directly with them. So that's certainly a challenge that we see everyone now dealing with, which is it's not good enough to have it all in a bunch of databases somewhere. It's got to be in a structure that AI can leverage and really utilize. I'm going to throw sort of a question we ask everybody, which is a pass the mic. As we're constantly sort of investigating and looking more at search and where you think search is headed, who do you think we might also ask to be on the podcast that would be a recommendation in this space that you've been speaking with or you think could add value to the discourse? I would like to look for some of the people who had been involved in that. Have you ever talked to Udi Mamber? No. No. So he was the head of search at Google for a while and he worked for Amazon before then. I think he consults for Neven now, but he's a fascinating guy who 
lives and breathes search and he'd be a great guest. I know we're definitely reaching out to Neva because I think it's just, it's a fascinating story, but perhaps that's an even more independent way to hear about the direction they're headed. So excellent. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us today and having a discussion on our search wars. It absolutely frames what I think will be a great season of how and the very varied way that we leverage search and how we're going to continue to use it and where it could be going in the future. The last question for you is, if you made a bold prediction regarding search, what's what's the bold prediction? What do you think comes in the next five years? Maybe not the Pulitzer Prize winning article, huh. but what do you think happens in search? Well, I don't know in five years, but I think we've already seen the process already where search becomes one of those words that gets so baked into what we do that we stop using it. That's very well put. We certainly hope that from a Yex perspective, obviously, because we're so in, entrenched in it. But at the same time, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's what I envision. My six-year-old won't even know that he's necessarily searching. My whole career has been to document the era of these disappearing modifiers like E or internet or online as they become just what they are. E-commerce becomes commerce, et cetera, et cetera. Online, this becomes just that. I would say disappearing modifier and cognitive prothesis was was probably the two pieces. Those really stick with us. And I absolutely appreciate you sharing all of those thoughts and, and your experience and your knowledge with us today. So Stephen, again, thank you so much for joining us to everyone. Thank you for joining us for Search Wars. We will talk to you next week. And that's our episode for today. Thank you all for your time. We hope you got some valuable insights from today's discussion. And as always, please subscribe to the Yext Talks podcast to hear more and to get more answers to the questions that matter.